Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Robert Bird, who is a professor of business law and the chair in business ethics at the University of Connecticut. Robert's wide-ranging research focuses on corporate social responsibility, corporate compliance, employment law, legal strategy, and the intersection of law and business. His work has been published widely, and he has received numerous teaching and research awards and is currently the president-elect of the Academy of Legal Studies in Business. Welcome, Robert. I'm happy to be here. So I want to start with one of your articles uh, entitled On the Future of Business Law, uh, in which you say, uh, with scandal after scandal uh, filling the business headlines and the unsettling lack of robust legal education in business schools, we have a critical mission to advance the importance of law in business. Um, law is too important to be left to the lawyers. Uh, what do you mean by that? Yes, that's very true. Um, we have seen companies having, as you have mentioned, scandal after scandal. And uh, companies are getting into legal trouble and are winding up having to pay significant fines, fees, being uh, defendants in litigation. And the law is becoming more complex and yeah. legal rules are becoming more punitive and having business people, managers and other members of an organization that are not necessarily formally legal trained, they need to have some legal education so they can make the right decisions. Um, law is not only a, a valuable uh, resource to avoid penalties, but it's also a source of competitive advantage. And one place that generally business people get their training is MBA programs. And yeah. while some MBA programs do require a course in the legal environment of business, Others do not. And so what you can have is it's from some of the top business schools, individuals who graduate with an MBA degree and have no knowledge about the legal environment in which they are going to work. And it's such a valuable part of, of an organization. Um, imagine if a company, say Microsoft, announced that they were going to fire their legal team and replace them with part-time um, general counsel, and they weren't going to have anyone uh, that was uh, formally legally trained in the organization. I suspect their, st their stock would go down and quite a bit. 
Yeah. Um, this we wouldn't expect that from our large companies to not have a legal education to be a, an important part of the organization, and we shouldn't expect it from business schools. So knowledge of the law is more important than ever. Yeah, I don't know how things have changed lately. When I went to business school, which was a long time ago, uh, I never took any any class in you know kind of law related things, um, and even ethics and uh, leadership things like that, which is I I suspect is more common now. Uh, you know, there was very little of that in business school education, so it was very structured. You know, the typical business school stuff: finance, accounting, marketing. Um, those types of things. And what you're saying is that uh, law and the legal knowledge uh, is is essential uh, for a business leader, right? Exactly. It's essential for any uh, business person. It can be someone in the C-suite. It can be a mid-level manager <clears throat> or someone who's leading uh, a small group of employees. And employees themselves, without management, uh, responsibilities also need to know. There are employment decisions that employees make. Employees need to know what is and is not uh, sexual harassment. They need to know what is and is not insider trading for just a few of the many examples. And what we see in business schools today is an increasing focus on quantitative analysis and quantitative uh, courses. And quantitative skills are vital for business uh, schools and for business students. But without an understanding of the illegal environment, you graduate a student who is educated in um, uh, technical matters, but yeah. um, is not equipped to make decisions in the legal environment and won't know when they've broken the law or violated regulation because they won't know what those obligations are in the first place. So business education uh, needs to have legal education inside it in order to make a, an effective and well-rounded uh, MBA. And you may be curious, what, where has this come from? And I think this trend towards qualitative, uh, quantitative analysis stems back, I think, as early as the 1960s. Um, in the late 1950s, there were two reports from foundations that were issued. And these reports uh, criticized business schools for not being technical enough, for not being scientific enough. And ever since then, there has been a steady move towards um, the scientificization of yeah. business schools, more quantitative models, more complex models, more thorough statistical methods. And those, of course, have... Uh, a lot of benefits. You can you can tease out knowledge from data, make better decisions, etc. But what has happened is that qualitative skills have been left behind, and mm -hmm. because legal knowledge has been left behind, um, the Code of Federal Regulations, which is a, a body of regulatory uh, rules in the United States, has increased uh, thirty six thousand percent since nineteen thirty five. Laws are more complex than ever. Rules and regulations, new ones, are being issued every single day. And at a minimum, students must be able to understand how the law works, what are the key legal issues that, that will influence their decision-making, and how to avoid liability. And while some business schools are meeting this admirably, others are not doing their job. Law is being set aside. It's being demoted to an elective or wiped from the curriculum altogether. And that means that the students they graduate will be ticking time bombs for legal liability. They will have absolutely no idea what they do is uh, right or wrong according uh, to the law. And that's disappointing.
Yeah, that is disappointing. Do you do you see things uh, changing for the better, or it's pretty much uh, the way that you describe even now? I think I think uh, we are going to see a change. I think probably in the near future, we are at a turning point, a critical turning point that's happening right now. And what, where we see the rise of the respect for legal knowledge, the rise of the respect for um, legal management outside of the, the chief legal officer suite is in, a, is in an emerging and important field called compliance. Yeah. Uh, compliance has been around since it has its genesis in the 1970s and 1980s with the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and other uh, compliance related rules. But only since the 2000s has the compliance profession reached, starting to reach its zenith. We see uh, banks were hiring waves of compliance personnel during the most recent Great Recession. Um, compliance is now being mainstreamed in many organizations. And what compliance is, is not only having a knowledge of the law for organizations, but also disseminating that legal knowledge to others in the organization. And as compliance rises, we are going to see that, that discipline become even more important to business. And what businesses will do is they will want to hire compliance trained personnel. And this is a demand that business schools are positioned to fill. The rise yeah. of compliance in organizations can herald the rise of compliance teaching um, in, in business school programs. So I think that there's an opportunity coming. And I think corporations are going to demand more from business schools. We, we need technical training is necessary, but not sufficient. We need future leaders that are going to make decisions within the ethical and legal bounds of the law. Yeah, yeah. So um, that is a good uh, segue into another one of your papers um, uh, talking about turning corporate compliance into competitive advantage. And, you know, you talk about sometimes companies look at compliance as a binary, uh, binary thing. Uh, but you argue that it's not necessarily binary. There is a whole gradation of compliance that companies have to think about, right? Yes, yes, that's right. As compliance matures, I think managers and organizations generally will see compliance as a, a more sophisticated uh, discipline than it was in the past. People who don't know compliance well will think, yes, we either are in compliance or are not in compliance, and that's the only two states that we have. And that's not necessarily true. Companies can be in a state of compliance, meaning the minimum of what the law requires. They can also be in a state of overcompliance, hmm. where they're, they're meeting regulations that they anticipate will happen in the future, as opposed to uh, regulations that are currently in place now. And then uh, firms can be in various states of non-compliance. Maybe you're technically non-compliant, you're almost the way there, but haven't completely followed the rules. And perhaps uh, companies can be in either serious or substantial non-compliance, where even the basics of a regulation uh, firms are not following. Compliance personnel and managers need to know where their firms are complying with the law and where their firms are not complying with the law. And if so, how far off is that compliance? Higher levels of non-compliance necessitate different kinds of strategies. Yeah. And so to even understand this requires managers to have legal knowledge. If you don't understand what the law is, you cannot make an assessment of whether or not compliance is working well. Right. And, and compliance, you say, is also a dynamic process. So one couldn't really look at compliance as a static thing. And this is true, especially in the, in the regime that we are in, that a lot of things are changing, and along with that, compliance requirements and regulatory aspects also change. 
which not only requires the people involved in it to be continuously on track, so to speak, or be knowledgeable of how things are changing. So the dynamic aspects of compliance sometimes uh, perhaps is missed in large companies. It is. It is. And that, again, goes to what I think is a, a lack of sufficient legal education or legal astuteness in, in organizations by line managers and others. So compliance needs to be treated in any organization according to what the organization needs. So if an organization is dramatically out of compliance, uh, then a compliance function needs to take some immediate and emergency measures to make sure that organization is in compliance immediately. If an organization is forward-thinking about compliance, then, then a company can think about how to uh, have compliance be a source of competitive advantage or a source of value. How can it use its legal knowledge to get ahead of its rivals? And compliance is constantly changing. Uh, the legal environment of business as a subject is, is, a, is, a, is a topic that can quickly go out of date. Every single day, new court decisions are being issued. Um, the Supreme Court will issue new decisions that will change the law dramatically. Um, in a single in a single sweep. Yeah. So what we see is that uh, companies need to not only have legal astuteness and awareness today, but they need to have the infrastructure in place to be able to keep up with the legal environment of business tomorrow, next week, next year, and for years to come. Right. Yeah. And you know when companies think about designing compensation incentives uh, for execs. Um, you know, they, they, they always think about performance, shareholder value, those types of things. Uh, but it's often uh, not considered, right, that the legal aspects and the, and the requirement of compliance and the ability to comply, so to speak. And um, you say that, you know, agency problems crop up. Um, compliance is perhaps not the first priority for managers. Uh, perhaps managers are selected uh, for other skills and they may even not have the skills to communicate uh, with those involved in legal aspects and compliance um, and even not know what uh, what requirements might be there. That's right. And, and, and communication of legal knowledge is, is another important factor. Uh, the managers that are the most vulnerable and the companies that are the most vulnerable are the ones that don't know they don't know right. that they're out of compliance or they don't even understand the lack of knowledge uh, that they have. And this can be a, a product of business education um, as well. Uh, disciplines like accounting, marketing, and finance, important and vital disciplines for, for, for an any MBA program in any organization, have a, a connectivity, a sense of a shared language. These disciplines reside largely in the social sciences and, and can speak to one another, even though the specific methodologies and topics are different. Law is, is a topic that finds its home in the humanities. It has social science aspects, yeah. but law's siblings are more philosophy, um, theology, English, and history. And we speak about texts and textual language. Law asks itself, or legal scholars ask about the law, what should society be? Not merely what is happening now, but how should society be changed? We look at questions of right and wrong. And in other fields, those kinds of questions are not asked as robustly. It's not enough for a manager to be uh, quantitatively skilled, but they have to be able to make decisions within the legal environment and also think creatively about where their organization is going. A strong compliance function and a strong legal knowledge can help uh, organizations be successful, get ahead of rivals, 
um, avoid legal trouble and can create a competitive advantage in the long term. Right. Yeah. And, you know, with, um, without a strong foundation there, um, organizations can drift into overcompliance or undercompliance as people change and requirements change. And uh, this could be a costly thing. So you have a very interesting way to think about this, sort of an efficient frontier of compliance. And, um, you know, there is sort of an optimization problem uh, for companies to think about, um, which is a trade-off between the requirements and the cost of complying. That's correct. And this is in uh, a recent article of mine co-authored with Stefan Park titled Turning Corporate Compliance into Competitive Advantage. And it's published in the University of Pennsylvania Journal of Business Law. And we model an efficient frontier of activity. And there really is an outer bound for an organization for how what kind of product they can deliver and what kind of price they can deliver that product at. And the same goes with legal knowledge and compliance. There are a state of best practices in compliance that are happening right now. The best practices that the best firms are doing in 2020. That can change over time. Uh, As we know more about compliance, as compliance evolves over a period of time, uh, those best practices will change. And good companies will need to keep up with the changing nature of compliance. And you also mentioned a good point about over and under compliance. Under compliance is costly because a company will expose itself to uh, legal fees and sanctions and potential litigation. Over compliance is also costly because those are resources that are tied up in the compliance function and are not allocated somewhere else. However, interestingly, over compliance can serve a useful purpose. If changing levels of compliance is very expensive, it's better to over, and you know that laws are going to change over time, it is better to comply with regulations that you expect in the future rather than now. And to give a simple example, say I'm a manufacturing concern and I have smokestacks that that pollute the air and I meet certain standards right now. If standards change from year to year, it will take a lot of money and resources to constantly re-update that facility. And if that's true, I as a manufacturer may say, I'm going to uh, conform to the regulations five years from now so that I have fewer changes that need to be done. I'm not always chasing uh, regulations. So when when changing costs are high or switching costs are high, having a program that looks ahead and not merely meets the minimum can be an efficient strategy. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, I sometimes feel, Robert, you know, uh, when we think about it more broadly, how regulations are written and, and instituted uh, has a big impact on, on the economy sometimes, right? So um, I just want to get your perspective on it. You know, uh, sometimes simplification of regulatory requirements uh, may have a beneficial effect. And when regulation becomes too prescriptive, um, it uh, it starts a whole wave of activities in corporations that is costly, not only for the company, but also for the economy. So from a policy perspective, do you see possibilities or opportunities for us to simplify the regulatory frameworks? I do. There are some possibilities. Uh, it's useful to know, and these are questions that my students often ask me, why are regulations and rules so complex? Why is the language seem so impenetrable And in many cases? The reason is this. Words are uh, finite and 
imprecise tools that are trying to govern and account for an infinite number of situations in the future. Okay. So when a regulation is written, the, the person who's writing the regulation has the knowledge of the legal environment today. They don't know how the legal and business environment will be five years from now, 10 years from now as well. And that's very difficult to predict. So language is often complex because a regulation is trying to capture an infinite set of scenarios where that regulation might apply. And another reason is that uh, sometimes regulations will change because uh, there is a hole in the regulation and Congress or a state legislature will fill the gap. Yeah. And when a, a legislature continually patches holes on a regulation, it gets more and more complex. This is one of the reasons why tax law is so very complex <laughs> right, because yeah. you know companies aggressively look for loopholes, weaknesses in order to avoid paying taxes. So what regulators do in response is patch those loopholes and then the rules become more and more complicated. But I do think there is a, a skill in legal simplification and that if regulators can simplify their rules such that they do not weaken their coverage, but yeah. make language that is clear and understandable to business people, that can help business people comply and reduce the transaction costs of compliance that every business must uh, uh, you know, to undertake in order to meet a certain rule. And that's where legal knowledge comes into play. Yeah. If you understand how the law works, you can read a regulation better. You will be able to comply with it with less time and less likelihood of, of making a mistake. But yes, statutes and regulations are complex and they can be made simpler. And I think that's an important task for regulators to accomplish. Yeah, like in accounting, for example, you know, do, do you think there is a difference between sort of descriptive um, descriptive regulatory requirements as opposed to prescriptive. For example, U.S. GAAP is considered to be highly prescriptive uh, compared to European GAAP, um, you know, which is more descriptive in its orientation. The problem with being highly prescriptive is that if you say you cannot do X and X prime, then you start to say, well, you didn't say X double prime, so I'm going to figure out how to do X double prime. And uh, that, that uh, you know, uh, is a slippery slope. Do you, have, do you have a perspective on that? That's a very good question. So the underlying uh, question about prescriptive you know, regulations and descriptive is how do they develop? And it depends upon the climate in which regulators and those that are regulators exist. If firms and regulators exist in an environment that's collaborative and mutually reinforcing, hmm. you will find regulations to reflect that climate. Uh, regulations will, will help uh, businesses meet their goals while still complying with the law. Regulators and businesses will work together to, to meet the, the necessary goals that are imposed by Congress or other legislatures. However, if firms and regulators exist in an adversarial environment, yeah. this is where you'll get a lot of hard um, prescriptive regulations, penalty-based regulations, and that's when compliance devolves into a game of cat and mouse. Mm. And if a manager believes that the only way to make money is to avoid regulations or set them aside or to not get caught, not only is that unethical, but also is not competitive over the long term. So a climate of partnership 
where regulatory governance is, is seen as a shared obligation between regulators and firms helps create an environment where you'll get regulations that I think are clearer, that um, don't impose unnecessary costs on firms, and you'll get increased compliance over the long term. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to jump into another one, another one of your articles uh, in MIT's Law and Review. Uh, it's called Finding the Right Corporate Legal Strategy. And um, they were, you're describing how um, forward-looking companies could use um, knowledge of legal frameworks uh, to, to attain a competitive strategy. For example, you describe a situation with Disney uh, managing their IP estate. Could you t- talk a little bit about that? Sure, I can. So traditionally, a manager's interaction with the law has been from the perspective of there is a rule, I need to meet it, it's going to cost me time and resources, but I know I have to, and I'll move on. Law is not simply something that is a, uh, a value retention device where you conform with, conform with legal rules in order to avoid getting sued. But rather, law can be used as a value creation or a value capturing device. And this research began with an article titled Pathways of Legal Strategies, which I published in uh, the late 2000s. And so from this research, you can find that law can be a source of competitive advantage. Firms too often look at laws as simply an obstacle to be avoided or merely just a constraint on managerial action. If firms can understand the rule of law as something that can be a source of value, they can outflank their rivals over the long term. So for example, if I own intellectual property, and this is probably the most obvious or basic example about legal strategy, I can think of my intellectual property rights as merely a mechanism to stop pirates from from, uh, pirating my goods or to stop others from infringing on my patent. However, the more savvy organizations will use their intellectual property rights as a source of value through, through royalties and other agreements. And they see their patent rights as strategic tools, as revenue sources, not just a method to shut other people down. Another example may be um, <clears throat> employment law. Uh, one area of employment law that has been prominent lately is uh, sexual harassment and the Me Too uh, social movement. So if a company views sexual harassment law as a box to check. Okay, we've trained our people and now they know sexual harassment is improper and they move on. You're missing out. You're missing out on so much potential because training in sexual harassment can help improve employee morale. It can help encourage encourage mutual dignity and respect. And it can create a climate in an organization which is highly valuable. And that climate is known as a culture of integrity. A culture of integrity is the idea that employees will conform to the law, not not because they have to, but because they want to, they believe it's the right thing to do, and they will proselytize those norms of compliance to others. You want an organization with employees that believe in your values, that believe that compliance is the right thing to do, not simply because they're going to get caught if they don't. And so legal strategy is bound up with this idea of a culture of integrity. And companies are leaving a lot of value on the table. And I think it's because uh, firms aren't fully aware of how important law is as a value generating resource for their organizations. Yeah. And, you know, you you have a framework in this article, um, five different pathways to legal strategy, which is sort of a a potentially uh, a life cycle uh, type thing, Uh, maybe a level of sophistication companies have come to. 
And you say there are five different pathways that you may find avoidance, compliance, prevention, value, and transformation. And so the first one there is avoidance, uh, essentially trying to avoid uh, the regulation. And you talk about uh, a case there, MF Global, uh, you know, sort of regulatory arbitrage, shifting, uh, shifting their operations from um, more regulated dom domiciles to less regulated domiciles, but not not really working out in the in the long run, right? That's right. And so you have these five pathways, and the lowest of the five pathways is, as you mentioned, um, avoidance. And uh, companies that view the law as something to avoid, they just see law as a costly and random or arbitrary barrier to business. They don't appreciate why laws are passed. They see them as a nuisance. And if they could avoid complying with them, all the better. Yeah. Typically, it's managers that aren't legally educated that will uh, exert these avoidance strategies. Yeah. If you don't have a background and in a respect of the law, it's much easier to see the law as just an unnecessary cost that you avoid. But companies that just avoid their legal obligations are either A, going to get caught, or B, are going to miss out on a lot of value at some of the higher legal strategies um, that are available. For example, uh, firms can also use law to preempt future business-related risks. This is a prevention legal strategy. And what they can say is, well, if I know that sexual harassment law is getting stronger for whatever reason, I can have training that engenders mutual respect amongst one's employees and create a climate that will encourage conformance to the law such that I don't need to continually have to fear that we will be catching up to laws uh, changes over time. If you think ahead about preventing legal obligations before those obligations occur, you're not constantly trying to catch up. The best firms can use the law to create a tangible, identifiable value over the long term. And legal knowledge is not something that's easy to replicate. replicate. And that's the power of legal knowledge. Say, for example, an organization says, well, we have the latest uh, version of Windows in all of our machines and no one else does yet. You know, we have a competitive advantage. But that advantage is not going to last very long because all your rivals have to do is purchase the same software and the competitive advantage is lost. Legal yeah. knowledge requires a cultural change, a long-term cultural change that builds towards a culture of integrity. You need to have your employees not only legally educated, but also uh, legally astute and respectful of what the law can deliver. If you can build a culture of integrity that understands the law as a source of competitive advantage, you will have something over your rivals that is difficult to replicate for the long term. Right, yeah. And you also describe, you know, a company can do a legal strategy audit uh, that will allow them to figure out where they are and possibly move up the, move up the value chain, so to speak. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Sure, a legal strategy audit. So what, what this audit does is a company will look inside itself, frankly, and say, how do we interact with our legal obligations? What resources are we allocating towards our legal obligations? And how do we as an organization perceive um, what we have to do in order to meet the, the necessary requirements of the legal environment of business? This usually requires uh, a compliance director. It can sometimes require an outside person to come in and consult. And conducting an audit like this is hard because no one wants to be told that the, the, your legal rules, your, your practices are insufficient. No one wants to be told that you're violating the law because it implies somehow that we're bad people. And that's not the case. Uh, it could be noncompliance can come out of ignorance or a misunderstanding of what the law is. So companies can take a frank, hard look at themselves and say, 
are we using our legal resources to its maximum possible benefit? And so you look for certain signals, right? If a company has a lot of class action lawsuits, uh, regulatory actions, you know, inquiries in involving business crimes, this is a company that is not engaging in legal strategy properly. It's probably following an avoidance strategy, the yeah. lowest of the five pathways. If the CEO is making statements regarding law as a source of competitive advantage, if the chief legal officer is treated as a full member of the C-suite team, if managers are trained in the law, if, if new employees are hired from business schools that provide required legal education, those are signs of more advanced strategies in the law. And those are companies that are more likely to succeed in the long term. There are so many areas of competitive advantage that, that have been explored over the years. But I think legal knowledge is one of the final frontiers of competitive advantage. It's a huge untapped potential for any company that's interested in, in examining this more deeply. Yeah. And its interaction with business, as you say, uh, is where a lot of the potential could be unlocked. Um, for example, you, you talk about Qualcomm's uh, strategy with the CDMA wireless patents. Uh, they, they, they essentially made CDMA a standard. Um, so, you know, when they pursued this, this strategy, it was uh, sort of different from what everybody would have thought in terms of locking up the patent, uh, but rather putting it out there to be distributed uh, to some extent, right? That's correct. Uh, Qualcomm was, had, a, had a savvy legal strategy, and it's a good example of an organization that looked at its legal assets and said, how can we use them to capture the greatest value? And the, the idea of using a patent or something that a company owns to, to let it be used to create a standard, that's difficult to do because yeah. patents are, you know, it, there's a lot of research that you need to, to, to do to develop a patentable idea. Then you have to patent it. And it's, it's almost contrary to the thinking of organizations to say, we have this, this legal right. We have this power. Why are we going to relax this power? Why are we going to let it go? But Qualcomm was savvy enough to do that because they knew by in increasing numbers of people using this technology, they would create a standard. And if that standard is something that Qualcomm is good at, they've just used their legal resources to generate significant value and leave their rivals behind. Yeah, it's interesting, Robert. I don't know what the, the current status is, but I know that Tesla, for example, put many of their patents in the public domain. And, um, you know, one could, one could think of the strategy as um, if you get electric vehicles uh, more diffused in the economy, more accepted in the economy, it only raises the value of Tesla because they 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 have a, a jump start, you know, on the electric vehicle market, right? Is that does that follow? Tesla is another example of a company using its legal knowledge in an intelligent and strategic way. And you you said it exactly right. Tesla is is carefully releasing its intellectual properties in order to create a standard that will be beneficial to Tesla over the long term. Tesla knows that it will not remain the 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 uh, you know only true major participant that has that focuses on electric cars, you know, forever. Uh, rivals are already emerging. Large auto companies are catching up rapidly. Uh, Tesla has to keep ahead and they can't rest on their laurels. And one way to do that is to, by strategically releasing these intellectual property rights, they are able to create standards that will benefit Tesla over the long term. 
And it's also good public relations yeah. to say that you're contributing to the greater good with legal knowledge. And, and Tesla is branding itself as a, as a kind of a hip, younger company, a forward-thinking company. Yeah. It's, it's one that's dynamic in its nature. And the way that it treats its intellectual property is, is one way to uh, promote that image amongst its markets. Yeah. So in conclusion, Robert, if you look at these two domains, um, education, more specifically business education, uh, and then corporations, um, uh, especially at the intersection of business and legal incorporation, in both of these domains, uh, what changes or what improvements uh, should education institutions and, and corporations uh, attempt to do uh, in the coming years? Sure. So there's two, there's a few things that both business schools and businesses can do in the coming years towards uh, regarding uh, legal education and legal knowledge. First, every business school must require at least one course in the legal environment of business for all its MBA students. No MBA student or undergraduate business student should graduate without knowledge of the law and the legal environment. Uh, Business schools can also look beyond a minimum requirement, and that's really the basics. If yeah. you have MBAs that graduate without legal knowledge, you have MBAs that are going into the marketplace blindfolded. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity for business schools to develop programs in compliance, in, in, in legal management and legal strategy that will be of value to the marketplace. And business schools need to change, and they need to quickly. Uh, the institution of business school is under threat. Uh, due to various disruptions and challenges. Anything it can do to respond to the marketplace is going to be something that's valuable. Second, businesses need to demand more from their employees. It is not enough to hire good lawyers to have an organization be legally astute. Rather, every employee should have some legal training that's relevant to what they do, and businesses should demand of their feeder schools, of their talent pool, that, that, they, that the knowledge that they require must involve legal knowledge. If I'm a business school and I'm hiring from a certain MBA program, I want to ask that MBA program, are my hires legally trained? Do they have the legal knowledge that they need to succeed in my business? business businesses need to demand more from business schools in terms of legal training, legal knowledge, and legal requirements that their graduates have. Yeah, it's almost like a cultural transformation, right? Um, you know, I've always felt, uh, you know, sort of funny thinking about learning ethics uh, sitting in a room, um, you know, there, there might be some information that you can, you can, uh, you can garner. But at the end of the day, it, it, uh, for a business, for a corporation, it's really about a cultural transformation. It's a foundational aspect, a foundational attribute of a company that makes it successful in the long run. Exactly. Law is too important to be left to the lawyers. <laughs> and th this is going to require a significant cultural change for both business schools and businesses. Business schools will need to embrace the benefits of qualitative knowledge that arises from legal study. And business schools uh, and businesses generally will have to appreciate better the importance of legal knowledge and compliance in their organization. This whole area of law and business is a source of value. It's, it's just waiting to be picked up and used by organizations. And companies that do recognize the value of the law in their organizations will be ahead of their rivals in a way that is not easy to replicate. 
it's a it's a source of competitive advantage. It's just be it's just waiting for businesses to step up and say, I value the law as important. I know I can use it for for significant value. And when they do, it will benefit them over the long term. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Robert. Uh, I really appreciate the time that you spend with me and uh, good luck with everything that you do. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Bye.